name is Gunner. I'm playing a local Austin band called The Big Gun Show. I've been making this podcast for three years now. I created it to sit down with other songwriters, musicians, artists, and lovers of music to talk about their top five records that have inspired their lives and musical prowess. Want to understand your musical heroes better? This is the place. Go no further. Today you have the opportunity and the glory of listening to Slade Cleves talk about why he picked his top five records. He's an Americana folk stalwart and has been putting out highly acclaimed records for 25 years. His most recent effort, Together Through the Dark, is no different. Scrappy Judd Newcomb produced it, and it's got familiar themes of struggle and resilience, which will be a surprise to no one that is a fan of Slade's. As Scrappy puts it, this album speaks to the hopeful, the hardworking, the battered, confused, and the sad, but above all to the believers of the city of freedom that we've heard of the stories of our youth and all of those FM radio hits. And that's just this recent record. Joseph Hudek of Rolling Stones calls uh, Cleves a master storyteller, one influenced not by the shine of pop culture, but the dirt of real life. And while he released a handful of songs, recordings during the early 90s, he finally really gained uh, significant notice with No Angel Knows. It was produced by um, former Lucinda Williams guitarist Gerf Morlux and combined Slade's interest in folk songs, early rock and roll, and traditional country music into an amalgamation of styles becoming known at that time as Americana. Uh, then he starts reading this Rolling Stone article about Bruce Springsteen and his inspirations for the, his Nebraska, Nebraska album and he climbs up into his parents' attic to rediscover all of these records that he remembers hearing as a child. Hank Williams, John Cash, Chuck Berry, and these guys became his guide to becoming this stellar songwriter. Uh, years later, he signed with Jimmy LaFave's Music Road Records, and he issued Everything You Love Will Be Taken Away in 2009. I love this. The liner notes are from a super fan, Stephen King. He then did a two-disc Sorrow and Smoke live at the Horseshoe Lounge in 2011, and then in 2013 he did Still Fighting the War. That was produced by Scrappy Judd, and the album was praised as one of the year's best albums by American songwriter. Um, the Wall Street Journal said carefully crafted songs about struggles of the heart and in hard times. And then the New York Daily News called his music a treasure hidden in plain sight. Austin Chronicle declared, there are few contemporaries that compare. He's become a master craftsman on the order of Guy Clark and John Prine. So that's Slade Cleves, and before we get talking to him, I'd like to mention that there are no advertisements in this podcast. I have a truckload of fun doing it. It's so much fun, but it takes a long time. At least 20 hours to research, listen, record, edit, produce each episode. And if you're willing to help, throw me a couple bucks, uh, price of a coffee, we'll get it that way. I have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash my top five records. Uh, let's get to the conversation, but first, close your eyes. You've got your top five records on your iPhone. You're doing chores around your house. What five records do you have? All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are at another episode of the My Top Five Records podcast. Today we have Slade Cleves with us, and I am thrilled. Um, if you haven't ever listened to Slade, you need to go out there and get it if you are a songwriter for sure. Um, Slade, how's it going, bud? Going great. Awesome. Thanks for coming over here. Appreciate it very much. So I've got your records today as Swordfish Trombones by Tom Waits, Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, Library of Congress Recordings, Woody Guthrie, Mission of the Crossword Palms, Steve Forbert, loved that record, and Dear Danger, Billy Harvey. Um, where are you taking these records? 
you know, I travel for a living, so I'm not going far. I'm just going to put them on my iPhone and do chores around the house. There you go. Yeah, right I've been on. doing a lot of chores around my house lately. Awesome. Uh, so these records that you picked, they're, they're very unique, okay? And I, I, don't get me wrong. I love them. Mm-hmm. It gave me a lot of insight into you, and I can totally see why you picked them. Um, I love how a lot of them didn't shoot up the charts right off the, right off the bat, but became iconic. Right. You know, and some never did shoot up the charts. Yeah, true that, <laughs> true that. But uh, I could not find a ton of reviews or, you know, a, a lot of detail. Uh, so I'm probably going to look to you for some insight on this stuff. All right. Uh, you want to start off with Tom Waits? Sure. Okay. So let's talk about his eighth studio album that was released in 1983 on nine, uh, Island Records. This was the first time that he produced an album by himself. Right. Um, by picking this record, you have put Tom Waits as an artist that has been picked four times. Right. So the most been picked has been seven, and that was by uh, the Beatles, Dylan, and Willie. Right. Um, it peaked on, it peaked at uh, 164 in the Billboard uh, charts. It didn't do great on the charts, but it was ranked the second best album of the year in 1983 by NME. Uh, Pitchfork ranked at number 11 in its 2002 list of best albums in the 80s. Q listed it as the 36th best album of the 80s in Slant Magazine. 26 best of album of the eddies so an example what we were just talking about didn't shoot up the charts didn't chart very well but man it is now legendary indeed so tell me a little bit about it well i'd, I'd been a tom wakes fan for years uh, i think in uh, in high school i came across uh, blue valentine was my first tom waits experience and i went out and got his records and i fell in love with all of them you know the first the first seven and yeah. you know they're all a little bit different you know he, he he uh he starts off as kind of a young romantic barfly piano singer really sweet songs most of them and uh he kind of built this sort of barfly piano player persona which mm-hmm. he sort of uh took tangents off of over, over the next few years uh sometimes getting into more uh jazzy almost bebop scat kind of yeah, spoken word totally. stuff from small change i think you did you do small change with graham is that is that right um i i don't remember exactly what i did with graham yeah, I, it might have been uh the dogs album rain dogs yeah yeah so he, he was kind of in that blues piano player a little bit of singer songwriter but very uh sort of a down and out barfly persona and um uh, started to get edgier and edgier as the years went by, but there was a huge, not a huge shift, but there was a very noticeable shift between Heart Attack and Vine, which was mm-hmm. before Swordfish Trombones, and Swordfish Trombones. I think it, I've read that it had a lot to do with him finding his wife, is it Kath, Kathleen? Yeah. Brennan? So, like, here he was, you know, it was in the 80s, he was kind of in this funk, he'd, you know, he'd been doing, he, this was like, he'd done like seven records, yeah. the ones you were talking about. And they were all kind of in the same vein. Yeah, he wasn't really satisfied with himself as an artist. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he meets his wife, Kathleen Brennan, right. and she kind of just like natures him and, and, and gets him out of this funk. Yeah. So I thought that was a really cool thing. And then he goes and does this completely different kind of style of music. Right. Right. Well, I go back and forth on that because in some, way, in some ways it's shocking. I remember when I heard... Uh, I think I heard Rain Dogs before Swordfish, but they're they're pretty much in the same trilogy, um, right? The, the Frank's Wild Years trilogy. I, I remember listening on a Walkman, 
I thought there was something wrong with the Walkman <laughs> <laughs> because the, like, the piano was sort of out of tune here and there or dissonant. The piano has been drinking. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I really did think something was wrong. Um, but I was, as I was listening over the last couple of weeks, the core is still there. You know, the songwriter, part, part, uh, sometimes sentimental and sweet and just really beautiful, uh, and sometimes really edgy and full of, like, really uh, original language. Like, uh, on the album of Four Swordfish, one of my favorite songs starts out with this line, so if I can remember it. Um, I woke up in a Mexican whorehouse across the street from a Catholic church. I wiped off my revolver and buttoned up my burgundy shirt. Man, what a great I mean, opening line. I know. Well, don't sell yourself short. You, you, I've been listening to your stuff today, and, I have been, <laughs> and I've, I've listened to you for a long time. Cool. But you have a, a unique way with lyrics as well. Well, I have a lot of co-writer help on that sometimes. But, yeah, oh. thank you very much. I, I strive to, to be as uh, vivid and original as that opening line. And, yeah. and those lines just sort of, it just sort of got, um, or, or Tom, Tom's... Um, Tom's lyrics and music definitely changed between Heart Attack and Swordfish. But like I said, the core was still there. You know, those great wordplay. And what I, it was meant, the big difference is instrumentation. You know, he was yeah. pretty with Bones Howell, the producing the first few albums. There were string sections, his piano, organ, um, sort of jazz, jazz, rock, blues, band, saxophone. And the first song is Swordfish. I think it's marimba. You never heard of marimba on a Tom right. White's record before. So it's yeah. marimba and a, like a, a, a primitive drum and a guitar playing. That is that when R Mark Rebo came in? Did he play on Swordfish trombones? I'm pretty sure I, that's Mark Rebo. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I so. Know. Who was a very distinctive musical style on guitar. And that's, that's a huge part of what made the shift between the pre-Swordfish and post-Swordfish. Right. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um... Yeah, so, I mean, I, okay, songwriter aside, you know, I, you take into consideration his, like, gravelly vocal, you take into consideration, uh, you know, just his attitude and the way he does things. You know, I consider him to be so rock and roll. Oh, yeah. Now, I define rock and roll different than most people. I, I define it like uh, Lester Bangs did. You know, it's, it's a more of an attitude hmm. than anything else. So, and I say this a lot, you know, Willie's rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm definitely rock and roll, <laughs> but it's the people that really don't care about what other people think. Right. And I feel that he has that in spades. Sure. Always has. One of the coolest performances I ever saw was, uh, I heard about 10 years ago, I heard that Austin City Limits was going to rerun the Tom Waits uh, show that he did in the mid-70s, I think, like 77, something like that. It was it was for the Small Change album, I think. Okay. Um, and it, it, have you ever seen this, this? Uh -uh. This is such a cool thing. It's on the Austin City Limits stage, and there's this, he's got some props, like a, a street lamp and an old-fashioned uh, gas pump or something, and he, he does the whole show like a like a play, like in character. He's not oh, wow. doing any spoken word, I don't think. Maybe a little bit in between songs, like a regular performance, but he's he's sort of like lounging around on this set and performing as if he's on a, like a, like a, a, a theater play. stage. Yeah. yeah, It's just mesmerizing. Awesome. Well, he was also super good buds with Keith Richards. Oh, I didn't. Oh, that Keith played on his record. That's right. Yeah, he yeah, did yeah, on one. Yeah. And uh, I know that Wade said at one point, you know, there's something in there that uh, this is a quote by him. 
or from him. There was something in there that I thought he would understand. He picked out a couple of songs that I thought uh, he would understand, and he did. He's got a great voice. He's just a great spirit in the studio. He's spontaneous. He moves around like some kind of animal. And I was trying to explain to him, and I finally started to move in a certain way, and he said, oh, why didn't you do that to begin with? And he said, I now know what you're talking about. And he's like, it's like an animal instinct. So, And uh, have you ever heard um, the story about him and Keith and – like okay so basically so. what happened is they were working on something and uh, here's Tom Waits going hey this is great Keith is like he, I mean, how is he remembering all this stuff you know and I'm sure Keith was really messed up at this point <laughs> but all of a sudden Keith screams out scribe <laughs> and he's like oh he wants me to write all this down <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> well what else about this record uh, really hits you the inventiveness of the music, you know, with Mark Rebo on guitar, with the new instrument, the marimba coming in, and with Tom sort of turning his, I guess earlier I was trying to say that he has sort of a sentimental persona and sort of mm-hmm. a wild man persona, a yeah. wild drunk, and he turns both of those up to 10. Like the song, um, A Soldier's Things, is I think one of the very saddest songs of all time. It's this, uh, it's this list of things that he f- would see at a yard sale or, you know, an estate sale, um, an old soldier's boots and his his rifle and his old bowling ball and his Davenport, whatever that is, and kettle drums. Do you know what a Davenport is? I do not. I think it might be like a like a shiffer robe or something like that, like a cabinet. I'm not sure. But he lists all these things that he'd see at a at a yard sale or a state sale and at the end the line is, and everything's a dollar in this box. So like your whole life yeah. is just worth like a dollar, you know. It kinda reminds me of a of a Hayes Carl song. Which one? Uh, what is it? The, the one about the bar and the... Uh, the the sailors, one about the bar. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the one, I don't know. No. Say there, the tattoo. All, all the, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like he does a good job with that kind of stuff. And, uh, then, and then there's songs like... Like, that's like the ultimate sentimental song. And then, well, Sputnik Music said, Swordfish Trombones receives four stars because at points the vocals can make you cringe and there are three instrumentals. Sometimes Waits' compositions just don't work and they turn into an unmelodic unmelodic piece of dog poo ah who said that uh that being said you should definitely purchase this album if you want something (laughs) new for a change but beware because it's not every day you stumble upon an album like this sputnik music said that yeah um i love the instrumentals i used to put this record on at night when i was in college just 20 years old i put on the last uh instrumental which is called rainbirds to fall asleep to. It's just really, mm-hmm. really soothing and beautiful and haunting. I just picture a, you know, like a the moon setting on the ocean in front of a, you know, navigation buoy or something out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Up in Maine, huh? Yeah. But I'm looking at the songs. Songs like, like, um, like Shore Leave. I just love uh, Shore yeah. Leave. It's just an inscription of a sailor in, in, in Singapore or something, you know, just getting off the boat with his two-day pass and, Trying to make it all last and drinking, drinking. I can't. I see. I, I want to call no, it no the worries. Lines. I can't uh, remember the lines, but they're just fascinating. And how did he? What did he do the research? He didn't go on an old tramp steamer right. across the Pacific Ocean to Singapore. Yeah. Where Where did he get all this material? He comes up with these amazing turns of phrase like, uh, I, w- "I was passing out wolf tickets." What does that mean? I was yeah. passing out wolf tickets. <laughs> I love the reviews that I hear. You know, it goes on to say, um, Swordfish Trombones was a cul-de-sac that Tom Waits only walked once. 
but it's still a landmark achievement, and it's an inspiring departure from the man's earlier work. Whether bizarre, deep, and dark lives go, unsung, uh, the spirit of swordfish trombones lives on. That's nicely written. It's, it's hard to talk. It's hard to describe interesting music. You know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. You know, yeah. when I read these reviews, it's typically like the the last paragraph that, that kind of hits home. Mm. Anything else you want to say about uh, our friend Tom Waits? Oh, just that he's endlessly fascinating to me. Sometimes I cry myself to sleep at night listening to his records, thinking I'll never be able to achieve anything like this. This is so amazing. Oh, come on! <laughs> don't sell yourself short. Yeah, right. I've been a fan for a long time. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that I have not been. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even though I, you know, I love Keith and love the Stones and they're, they're my heroes, but uh, I never really listened to, to Tom Waits, even though I knew he was buds with Keith. And then I started doing this podcast and people kept picking the records. Yeah. And so now I've gone down a rabbit hole. Cool. You know, and I'm about, and I've already gone down a rabbit hole with Billy Harvey and I'm about to start with Steve Forbert too. Nice. So. Let's talk about Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen. It was his sixth studio album and was released in 1982 by Columbia Records. It was ranked 43rd on the Rolling Stone magazine's list of 100 greatest albums in the 1980s. Uh, Pitchfork and Slant uh, magazine also put it in the same category. Uh, I love this. Kelly Clarkson compared her effort for her uh, third studio album, uh, My December, basically trying to become more edgier um, to Nebraska. Right, and then did you know that uh, I guess it was last year or the, last year Ryan Adams released a full track by track cover of Nebraska. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was just listening to it earlier today. Hmm. Uh, it's not as good. <laughs> it's not. It's not as rough and raw. Right. Okay. So I told you I wasn't going to do many quiz, quizzes this time hmm. because I didn't have a lot, but I do have one quick quiz question for you here. All righty. So and it shouldn't be very hard. Um, Bruce recorded all the songs off this record on a four-track recorder and planned to record them with the E Street Band. True or false? True. You got it. Task, it. Tascam 144. There four you track go. I didn't, even, I didn't even go into that kind of detail. Yeah. yeah, so he recorded the songs on this Tascam uh, four-track recorder. Was going to re- do them with the E Street Band, but decided to leave them as they were. Cassette recorder. Cassette, yeah. correct. Yeah. Course, exactly. Yeah. I, mean, I read that he, he went out and bought it just so he could do this. Yeah. I went out and bought one as soon as I heard that. <laughs> but on elite, I used one on layaway. Actually, it was years later. But uh, and even though, again, here's another perfect example. You know, this album did not skyrocket up the charts at all. No. You know, but it has become a, a cult iconic classic. Right. Uh, so most of the songs in here are going to deal with you know kind of ordinary, down on their luck, blue collar characters. You know, who are facing challenges and turning points of their lives. Yeah. So how did this hit you? I remember when I first heard a song from it on the radio on WBCN in Boston. And think of the context. It's 1982, you said, right? So this is right after Born yep. in the USA, and I'm listening to Springsteen and The Clash and Tom Petty. I think, you know, I think Born in the USA came after this. Oh, it was right after The River. You're right. The River okay. came out in 80. So it was right after The River and, uh, you know, it's, uh, London Calling and Damn the Por- Torpedoes and, you know, all this anthemic rate mm-hmm. arena yeah, yeah, rock. Yeah. And I, I was playing in garage bands at the time in, in high school, and those were our heroes. Uh, and, you know, done with high school, the band breaks up. You realize, you know, you're never going to be a big rock star. You're never going to ha- you don't have, I didn't have the, uh, the charisma or the talent or the drive that Springsteen had or the record label or the studio or right. the band or anything like that. I'm just a little guy 
playing guitar in my room by myself. But then I hear an album. Well, I heard heard the song uh, State Trooper on the radio, mm-hmm. and I got goosebumps, and it just was so haunting and so scary yeah. and so stark. And it was just a guy in a room with a guitar and a harmonica. I don't think there's even harmonica on that one, actually. Just a dude in a room with a, a guitar and a song and an echo machine and a four-track recorder. And I just said, well, I can get those tools, and I can aspire to make re- music as powerful as this, as meaningful as this. That's awesome. Totally yeah. inspired you. Very much so, yeah. And I think that was 82, right? I think for yeah. the next 18 years, my quest was to make a record my nebraska a record mm-hmm. you know as powerful and moving as that and when I'm, the broke down record came out in 2000 my record you know when i finished that record with gurf morlicks uh, the producer um i really thought this is i've finally done what i've been trying to do for 18 years you know this is what i've been trying to do trying to make a record as as simple and moving and uh, arresting as nebraska well um I'd like to go ahead and second that because I feel like broke down. That's when I first heard of you. Mm, yeah. And that was back 20, 30 years ago. 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, everything from Horseshoe Lounge to broke down. I mean, those songs, they, they stuck with me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I just, I feel that the, I feel you have a way with lyrics that most people don't. Mm. Um, and I mean that as it, it with the highest regard. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so the songs also um, address subjects about like outsiders and criminals and mass murderers, little hope for the future, if if, mm-hmm. if any at all. Um, you know, even the title track, Nebraska, it's like the, there's a guy being sentenced to death in the electric chair. Right. And um, one of the things I love about this album is how raw it is. Right. Right. I mean, it is bare bones. I mean, basically, he just decided, he said, this these songs sound... He, originally, he wanted to take them to the band. Right. And then Stevie Van Zandt was like, release it as it is yeah that was brilliant yeah, yeah. It, it was you know and because mm-hmm. and I'll go into it when we talk about the reviews but do you ever listen to Chris Knight oh yeah I he's another one of my hero songwriters mm-hmm. um, he just he has a way with lyrics much he's like great. you great yeah. he's incredible uh, he had an album trailer tapes and trailer two mm-hmm. which is basically he was granted he was in the studio was on a four track recorder but he did kind of the same thing mm-hmm. it was just him and his guitar let me check that out uh, they're they're great. They're yeah. his a, a bunch. It's not and it's not an original, like new album of all new songs. It's basically it's two records of his hits or oh, okay. his songs that he's done just acoustic. Right, and that's really when I got into him. Hmm. So it's really nice to see those singer songwriters really you know break down the song, and it's that I try to do that because I write these rock songs and I right. I. So I just got this new J J two hundred, and uh, it's beauty. It's yes, thanks to my wife for that. All right. Uh, but yeah, so um, what else about this record kind of hits home for you? Um, well, it got me playing guitar. I started out as the keyboard player because I took piano lessons as a kid growing up. And my first garage band, I was the keyboard player. I didn't sing or anything. And then in my second band, we fired our lead singer. And so we had gigs, so we all had to sing the song. Right. We all had to divide up the songs three ways. So that's, I started singing in, when I was like 18 or 19. And then uh, when I was about 20, I decided, well, I'm, I don't want to be stuck behind the keyboard. You know, it's a hard thing to lug a Hammond Porta B around. You know, yeah. I'm going to switch to guitar. And the Nebraska album really uh, inspired me to to sort of dig into, uh, well, I heard 
I heard uh, Bruce talking about sort of the progenitors of rock and roll, people like Woody Guthrie and Hank Williams and Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. That was that informed his writing on um, musically on uh, Nebraska. So I, I kind of started doing deep dives and started listening to music really intensely, not just the music on the radio, but deep and down, diving deep into people's influences and who they were talking about. So right. Nebraska did that, and and I learned all those songs and. I, uh, as a singer-songwriter with guitar, I started out as a busker, and so I played all those songs. In Ireland, right? I was in Ireland at the time, yeah. And I would, a couple of times I did the album front to back. I did every single song on Nebraska <laughs> just to, to challenge myself, you know. That's what Ryan Adams did. Yeah, and, um, and s- something really cool happened years ago. Um, somebody approached me, I think it was at a South by Southwest thing or something, so some stranger approached me with a cassette, and all it said on it was Colts Neck, New Jersey. And that rang a bell with me. I think I knew that Springsteen had a house there or something. And so I put the cassette in, and it's it's a bunch of uh, those four-track demos from the Nebraska period. And it's got, like, the four-track Nebraska version of Born in the USA on it. Yeah. And it's, and it's got a couple songs I'd never heard before. One that I love It's called The Losing Kind that I'd never heard anywhere else. I think it may have been released officially since then. It was... 20 years ago when somebody gave me that cassette. But I'm just fascinated with that that period of Springsteen's writing, that period of his career. Well, he is, he's an amazing songwriter, too. Yeah. And, you know, um, full transparency, and I hate saying that because I should always be transparent, <laughs> um, but I've never really been a fan. Um, I've heard that his live shows are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, as a more mature songwriter, I feel I'm more mature. Actually, I know I am, but um, I, I have more of appreciation for him right now. Sure, you know he doesn't have the best vocal in the world, but he's right. got he's got a way with the song. Yeah. So um, Sputnik said that the power of Nebraska lies in its characters. That's not to say it doesn't sound incredible. It does. Every tape is dud note and hesitant line adds to the atmosphere of decay and isolation. But this isn't a isn't music about orgasmic finales or earworms. It's all about people. Yeah, it's about people and it's about a mood. You know, he yeah. really establishes a mood he with does. that echo Completely. and the verb and everything, and those haunting howls that he does. You yeah, who would have thought that like a a howl that he would do on stage with the E Street Band would would translate into something totally different in the intimate setting of the uh, broke down right. Uh, All music stated there's an adage in the record business that a recording, uh, excuse me. There's an adage in the record business that recording artist demos of new songs often come off better than the more polished versions later worked up in the studio. But Bruce Springsteen was the first to act on that theory when he opted to release the demo versions of his latest songs. And that goes on to say Nebraska was one of the most challenging albums ever released by a major star on a major record level. Hmm. I've always well, I've believed that for a long time. I've found that I always prefer the demos to the produced version. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I hear you. You know, I mean, that's that's how the song comes. Yeah, you know, somebody writes it somehow. Yeah. So it's gonna be piano usually or, or guitar. Yeah. What else? What else about Nebraska? I mean, um, you, you said it's inspiring, and I I agree with that. Yeah, it's just uh, for all these years since what 1982. So we're talking. Yeah, 82. 40. Is it 40 some odd years? 41 years. 41. Yeah, it's just it's been part of my musical persona in the background all this time trying to trying to recreate that that intimacy and that the power of those words and the power of that performance well um let's keep it intimate 
and talk about Woody Guthrie. It's a good segue. Yeah, uh, got lucky on that one. <laughs> so, uh, you want to start off talking about this record? Or you want me to? I'll talk about it. Um, uh, so this was uh, maybe a year or two after I heard Nebraska. Like I said, I, I'd heard Springsteen talk about Woody Guthrie, and I'd heard Joe Strummer talk about Woody Guthrie, and I heard Bob Dylan mentioning Woody Guthrie. And I get who the hell is this guy? Yeah, I got to check this guy out. And I knew about this land is your land and Pete Seeger and. But that's about all I knew about Woody Guthrie. Mm-hmm. And so early in, you know, I went off to college, and um, they had a library there with vinyl and turntables and headphones. Nice. So I went to the library, I checked out Woody Guthrie, and I checked out Dust Bowl Ballads, I think it's called. And, you know, I set the needle down, and I think you're probably old enough to remember. Remember when you would just sit and listen to a record and not yeah. do anything else, not scroll on the machine or not yeah not I, would look at or, the, I would read all the liner yeah, notes yeah. and I'd just sit there and look at the record yeah you know for a whole album you know for 20 minutes at a time outside yeah. so I did that in the library and um it didn't hit me it was just too remote you know it was a scratchy old recording of this guy it wasn't great singer or player or anything telling singing songs about surviving dust storms and riding in old jalopies out to California and trains just, yeah just I didn't get it, but thankfully I I stayed with it and I picked up the Library of Congress recordings, which is a double album uh, recorded by Alan Lomax, the famous uh, folk song um, ethnomusicologist. Ethnomusicologist. That's the word. That's nice job. Word for him. Nice job, man. That's what he is. And so he's asking Woody questions and setting up the songs, and they're passing a little whiskey bottle back and forth, and he's asking Woody for jokes and you know. Uh, Details about what this, details about his upbringing and, and the little towns he grew up in and the freight trains he rode and the migrants that he hung out with and so everything just burst into reality for me. I, I thought oh, I see where this guy is coming from and Woody's Woody's conversational style is very kind of folksy with sort of uh, redneck you know, jokes yeah. redneck but also you know I learned out I learned later that uh, in the previous few years he'd actually already had a radio show. Yeah. Out in California, uh-huh. where he kind of presented himself as the kind of Oklahoma hick, you know, telling okay. old old time story uh, yeah. stories about the old home place, you know. So he he was a performer already. He was uh, he was twenty eight years sure old. For sure, he was. Um, but it, it sort of taught me the importance of of presenting a persona, mm-hmm. you know, when you're performing in public. Agreed. That was a an early lesson, but I just. Uh, it was just haunting him telling the stories about uh, his his the, the troubles that his family went through and you know his father's house burned down his sister died in a fire and his father was crippled in a fire his mom went off to the insane asylum with you know a disease that he would later inherit you know he lived with that all his life and uh, the coolest thing is uh, years years after I discovered this record and it became such an influence I was in Okima at the Woody Guthrie Folk Festival and. I was walking down the sidewalk of downtown Okima, and I don't know if somebody pointed it out or what, but it, it seems like I just came across it accidentally. I see in the sidewalk, scratched in the in the cement, Woody, twenty eight. Whoa! Like Woody nineteen twenty eight, and uh, do the math. I think he was born in twelve, so that was when he was sixteen. He scratched that in the sidewalk, and that's right around the time that his family all fell apart, and he, all his siblings got scattered to various family across Texas and Oklahoma and he started you know, his vagabond ways when he yeah. was 16 years old and it was just really exciting to stand in the spot where Woody stood that's awesome yeah I love how you know he 
he talks so much on this. Like the songs yeah. are, you know, sometimes eleven minutes long because yeah. he's talking, telling stories and stuff. And Alan's asking him all these questions. Yeah, but he's talking, you know, about race relations, uh, his child experiences, childhood experiences in Oklahoma, gangsters, outlaws like Pretty Boy Floyd mm-hmm. and and Jesse James, and just riding the rails and all of these stories that just give you so much insight into him mm-hmm. and why he writes those songs. Right, you know. Telling the stories of the people he was living with. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, you know, the fact that, like, there's this whole kind of Alan is kind of interviewing him and, and bringing out all this stuff. Uh, it kind of reminds me of what I'm trying to do with this podcast mm-hmm. in the sense that I, I'm trying to get I'm trying to, to open up that chest and, and let you let you talk about things that have inspired you. Yeah. Great. Nice so. job. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it basically didn't get released until 1964 by Electra Records. Hmm. Um, and then there was this letter that uh, Guthrie wrote to Lomax where he touches on how he defines folk music. You ready for this? Yeah. Um, a folk song is what, what's wrong and how to fix it. Or it could be who's hungry and where their mouth is, or who's out of work and where the job is, or who's broke and where the money is, or who's carrying a gun and where the peace is. That's folklore, and folks made it up because... They seen uh, that the politicians couldn't find nothing to fix or nobody to feed or give a job for work. Nice job, Woody. Isn't yeah. that great? That's really what it, it, <laughs> You know, he probably wrote that uh, in, in the middle of the Depression, after years of Depression, before World War II, right? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, well, I, I don't know when he wrote it, mm-hmm. but it was it, it was definitely probably in the 40s because that's when they had all their correspondence, 40s, oh, okay. 50. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's just like... You know, I mean, he, he's been a huge influence on. I mean, Wilco and Billy Bragg came out and mm-hmm. did like two volumes of his songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he, th- this guy is one of the people, in my opinion, that really made a song a song, if that makes sense. It, you know, having not just the verse and the chorus, but also, you know, the story that goes along with it. Right. You know, because I mean, up until then, it's just probably just like blues and stuff like that. They're just repeating right. lyrics. That's a good point. Yeah, he was really uh, he was a real storyteller in a way that pop music wasn't at that time. Yeah, you know? pioneer. I mean, right. th- was there even pop music back then? I guess it was just like, ah, uh, you know, wasn't there like a Bing Crosby and stuff like that? I I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, d- I just know that Woody Guthrie, in my opinion, is a pioneer of songwriting. Sure, of course. Yeah, he's he's the great granddaddy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the great great granddaddy for sure. Uh, but yeah, you know, and, and so I don't know. It, what, anything else that 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 really inspires you about Woody Guthrie? Um, well, a ton. I mean, I used to used to joke that if I ever got a tattoo, I'd have Hank Williams on one shoulder and Woody Guthrie on the other shoulder. And I do. I've gone back to those guys from time to time for the last forty years. It's just sort of like the elements of songwriting. You know, if you get distracted or uninspired or feel burned out, just Go listen to some Hank and some Woody, and you'll just you'll relearn. You'll remember what you need for a song is just you, you need a story about what people are going through. Um, Woody said one time something like, uh, "Let me be the guy who told you what you already knew," and that, that was hard for me to understand. But I I sort of reformed that for my own philosophy. Is uh, after writing songs for a decade or so and, and not having much success. I got I got to some real soul searching, and, and I was reading Woody Guthrie, and I, I heard that quote, and uh, I read that quote, and I, I 
I sort of translated it to my own experience and I thought, I don't need to tell people what I'm thinking in my songs. Some people do that in, in the expectation that there's somebody out there who feels the same thing. And that's one way to go about it, and that's how I did it earlier. But what I learned from Woody's quote there, let me be the guy who told you what you already know, is it's not my job to tell you how you feel in the audience. It's my, I'm sorry, it's not my job to tell you how I feel. It's my job to tell you how you feel. It's my job to articulate what you're going through. That's the power of a song. When somebody recognizes themselves in a song, I think that's the most important connection. I love that, Slade. That's, that is that is. A, it's words that agreed. I live by. Yeah. Agreed, a hundred percent. I I wish I could do it that well. You know, <laughs> well, practice, practice, practice. I am <laughs> <laughs> trying. I'm trying my best. So let's move on to um, Billy Harvey, hmm. um, which, again, never heard of him. Yeah. Um, and you know, this was released in Dear Danger. I went to his, his website and I saw a quote from AJ, uh, you say Crochet? Croce, I think. Croce, okay. Uh, it said, Billy Harvey is the most famous person you've never heard of. <laughs> he should be famous. And that rang true to me for sure because I've, I've never listened to him and I've been in Austin for since 89. Uh-huh. Um, wow. And, uh, but you can rest assured that I've already started down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Like it's, it, what, what he does is, uh, truly amazing, and I yeah. I can't believe that I've never never listened to him. I know it's it makes me really mad that he's not more well known because he's he's brilliant man at so many things. He's a great performer and singer and guitar player, and he, I I had him uh, a songwriter. I mean, and a songwriter. I I first met him. He was busking on Fourth Street in front of Rudamaya Coffee when I first met him around two thousand. I, I think. Yeah, I totally remember that place. And we just we started talking, and we just. I felt like we were kindred spirits. He was new in town. He just, just that's what I did when I was new in town. I was busking on Sixth Street for the first year or so. And for some reason, you know, our paths just didn't cross for another eight or ten years. And I heard some of the music he was. Uh, I don't know if it was one of his records or something he produced, but I heard something that he worked on and thought that's that's what I need for this one song that I can't get with the other people I was working with. Mm-hmm. So I called him out of the blue and said, "We produce a song for me." And he produced it in his home studio. He's, you know, he's an engineer, a producer. He played drums and piano and guitar yeah, and bass and, and background vocals. And he did a beautiful job on the song Cry from the Everything You Love record. Yeah. And, um, you know, plus he, he's such a cool dude. I'm, I'm a stan. I'm a Billy Harvey stan. You had just finished traveling around the country in a, an old Mercedes the, that he converted into to run on uh, Grease Trap yeah, Grease or something. Exactly. Did you read about that? I, I did. It's in his bio. <laughs> Uh, yeah, his website also says, um, describes him as a caffeine-addled do-it-yourselfer. <laughs> Billy Harvey has navigated his career by quietly directing, editing, recording, and producing everything in sight. He's produced records for artists like Crystal Power Socks, from American Idol, Bob Schneider, Pat Byrne, Charlie Mars, Steve Poltz, you as well. I just think that, uh, you know, he is a man of many, many talents yeah. and um, great insight into into the song and and how it will be perceived by the, by the public. Yeah, and this this album in particular, Dear Danger, just blew me away. I mean, it almost depressed me thinking, and I really did. I, I didn't write anything for several months after hearing this record because I thought, I can't, I can't touch this. This <laughs> is so freaking good. Every song is really great. Right. No, it it really is. You know, He's also worked with Patty Griffin, 
uh, Kim Ritchie, um, Four Strangers, and the Courtyard Hounds. Digital Music Marketing said Harvey's new CD entitled Dear Danger plays like a Dear John yet letter to the perils and pitfalls of any day life. It's nicely done. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about him. A little bit about, uh, I mean, you know him. What was he like? He was super cool, man. It's like we had a lot of the same books on our bookshelves in, the, in his home studio. You know, I saw his bookshelf. And, and uh, yeah, take a look at mine before you go. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, we just, like I said, we hit it off when he was a busker. We hit it off in the studio. And, uh, but I haven't, I haven't seen, I went and saw a few of his shows after that. And he's really good at, uh, you know, those, uh, I don't want those little loop devices where he'll uh, yeah. he'll, he'll play a, a, a lick, terrible at that. loop it, and he'll get up to three or four of them and then sing a song over these four or five loops that are going. I don't know how he does that. He's just a genius. I, um, uh, I've traveled a lot in Latin America, and I wow. see a lot of people do that. One person shows mm. where they do it, and then they look. They'll do, you know, start it off with a beat, then they'll yeah. do a loop, then they'll do a, l- a little riff on top of it, then they'll play a bit. And yeah. they, they have like eight things going on, and they finally just start singing, and it's just like, oh, wow, this is so amazing. Yeah. It's a real gift or a, a real skill. But, you know, it's just mystifying to me that that his music isn't more well-known. It makes me mad. You know, I, I went on to Spotify, and he doesn't have a lot of followers. Uh-huh. He doesn't have a lot of spins. Uh, Their Danger... I never saw anybody review it or, or talk about it. I felt like I was the only person who knew this record. Right. I told everybody about it for years. And it just makes me mad because I, re- I really think it's it's the the level of songwriting and uh, the level of production and performance on that record. You know, it's up there with Paul Simon and, and Tom Petty and just all the best. Mm-hmm. If Billy, if that record had come out in the 1970s, you know, he'd be up there with Jackson Brown and, and, yeah. and any of those guys, I think. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, Digital mu- music marketing also said this time around, or he he's quoting uh, Billy, or they are. Uh, this time around, I wanted to write songs about the you and not the me, which in rest in retrospect reinforced the us and all of them. Nice. That's sort of the uh, not my job to tell you how I'm feeling. Yeah, it's exactly. My job to tell you how you're feeling. It's I haven't read that quote. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just feel like, you know, this whole record and the songs and, and everything that's saying is, you know, it's really about struggle. It's about loyalty. It's about humanity. It's it, and, it, and ultimately, I feel it's about victory. Hmm. That's good to hear. Yeah, it's, it's not a downbeat record. No, it's, it's honest, not. but it's not downbeat at all. It, it, it's very, it, it's earwormy to me. Yeah. Like oh, a, yeah. It, it, it hooked me right in. Yeah. I, I had to go listen to some other stuff right after that, which yeah. I don't have time to do all the time. Right. You know? Yeah. I was surfing in the uh, the web, and I saw an interview with you in Lone Star Magazine hmm. and where you had said that you hadn't been listening to much. Uh, what would you say? You said, uh, Billy Harvey, Billy, uh, you hadn't been listening to much, but you just said the, the new Billy Harvey record, uh, not the brand new one, Elephants in the Room. I haven't delved into that yet, but two or three years ago, he put out Dear Danger. Did you ever come across that? I just love that record. I love the sound, the writing, everything. And I couldn't agree more. See, I told you, I was telling everybody <laughs> about it. I was talking about it in my own interviews you know, about know. my record. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for picking this record because it's now, it's it's helping me become a better, let's call it musicologist. <laughs> right. Or lyricologist, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to say about uh, Billy Harvey or Dear Danger? I think we've said it all. All right. Go out and find it. Yeah, for sure. Um, guys, if you if you haven't he- heard these records, I had not heard any of them. They are fantastic. 
and very insightful. If you want to get to know Slade Cleaves better, you need to go and pick, check these records out, including this next one, Mission of the Crossroad Palms by Steve Forbert. Okay. Truth be told, I never, I didn't know. I've, I'd seen the name, never mm-hmm. listened to him hmm. at all. Yeah. Blown away again. Released in 95. Complete and utter commercial disappointment. Yeah. Astounding to me. Produced by Gary Talent, who was an original member of Spring, Spring the E Street Band. Yep. Um, talk to me. Um, I I had known about Steve Forward as a kid. I heard a uh, Romeo's tune. You know, he had a big mm-hmm. national hit in the seventies, and it was a really nice song. But I, I didn't really go out and buy his records or anything. And then um, when this record was coming out, I had this good friend who was worked for a distributor a big label distributor, and she'd give me a, a box of, C- of, of uh, cassettes. <laughs> it right. was that long. It was the early 90s. And she gave me this box of cassettes, and it had Mission on it. And I popped it in and was immediately struck by it. Uh, you know, it just starts out with a great bluesy guitar yeah. riff and the band kicking in, piano. and Tight. Just, yeah, just a great band, a great rocking band. And these, uh, I was really struck by his vocals. There was something about the way they recorded his vocals that they're super intimate, I don't think there's any effect on him except like a lot of compression. So uh-huh. it's like it's like he's talking right in your ear, like in a really, uh, like a, a wisp. He's got kind of a wisp, kind of like my voice, you know, a real powerful voice, kind of a little raspy, wispy kind of voice. But it's just like you can hear every, you know, yeah, click yeah. of a tongue lip and smack. lip smack. Yeah. So I was just impressed with the sound at first, and then the songs are just masterfully put together. A nice variety of. Uh, sort of wistful songwriting, some kind of like trying to hook up with old flames and mm-hmm. thinking about your life when you're on your younger days and, and uh, just just great stuff. And again, it was like his least commercially successful record of his career at the time, I think, or something like that. And it yeah. just makes me so mad. Well, I mean, I, I think the feel, I mean, for me, the songs, you know, they, they deal with a lot of regret and realities of kind of middle-aged people. yeah. You know, and then yeah. I also found it was recorded in five days. Wow, didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was uh, in Nashville visiting a friend, and we were out to see a show, and Gary Talent was there. So I did, I did get to approach him and tell him how much I loved the production of that album. So, and I, I remember reading the one review I read about Mission of the Crossroad Palms, is they said the production was unremarkable. And I, I just couldn't believe that because the production is perfect on this. The stereo the review amazing. called the record. Uh, or said the latest Steve Forbert's mediocre comeback albums. Oh. He has still a graceful way with melody. Forbert has virtually nothing to say. Oh my Who the hell's God. this guy, right? <laughs> How could that be? <laughs> <laughs> so lovely. Yeah, I mean, he gives me kind of a, um, a Rodney Crowell vibe, yeah. if, if, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, you know, songwriting mixed with not the greatest vocal, mm-hmm. um, a very unique vocal, very unique. Yeah. yeah. Very unique, very like Tom Waits. Yeah. You know? Mm hmm. And I, I, I completely understand why you would pick this record. Yeah. You know, it's 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 deep. It, 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 it approaches subjects that people want to hear about yeah. uh, and that, or, or that they feel. Yeah. The music is for them. Sure. He's a songwriter for sure. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, this is another one of those albums that was just like a touchstone to, like, to attempt to achieve that kind of greatness, you know, to, yeah. to always, you know, set it up as an example to try to be as good as that record. And another thing that I like about all the record records that you've picked is that they're all songwriters. Oh yeah. You know, and I, I expect nothing less from you. Right. That's my thing. Yeah. 
those are my top five records. We can talk about them later. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, I know that at, at times he was compared to Bob Dylan. Um, Everybody was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bob, but, you know, Bob you Dylan. take a take a look at it. Okay, so I'm probably going to piss off some, some Bob Dylan fans, but I think this is way better. than his, his vocal, he writes better songs, I think. More relatable, for sure. For and, sure. And that's emotional, a, that's too. That's a great way to put yeah. it. That's an awesome way to put it. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate Dylan for his genius and his mastery, uh, a mastery of uh, the knowledge of American music and his mastery at songwriting and everything. And, and I, I really do love his voice, too. I love, you know, when, when he sings... It sounds odd. If it sounds like he's singing something odd, he's doing that on purpose. That's yeah. exactly what he wants to do. So, total respect for Bob Dylan. But you know, I don't think a Bob Dylan song ever put a lump in my throat or made me cry. Yeah, and that's the difference. This Steve Forbert record will choke you up. Yeah, I mean, it, just the way that he sings it, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's very intimate. Yeah, uh, Jeffrey Heim said. He finally fulfilled his talent with Mission of the Crossroad Palms. Oh, good for Jeffrey. The best album of his career. Nice. It preserves the breezy charm of his early work while stripping it all of his callow glibness. Forbert once tagged the new Dylan, now more closely resembles John Prine in these bouncy country folk tunes. Yeah, Yeah. glad somebody recognized it. The Pittsburgh Post Gazette said, though the album or thought the album derived most of its energy from Forbert's mastery of broad musical arrangements and nuanced phrasings, and that insinuates itself with each successive play. Nice. Uh, Philadelphia Inquirer said, folk rock tunes sometimes match John Prine for lyrical inventiveness. Yeah. I love that all music said wrote. Um, Forbert has flowered into a distinctive broad-based songwriter. Nice. So, I mean, I, I, I truly enjoyed this album. And now, again, um, thanks to you, I have to go down another rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. <laughs> well, you know, what's funny about these last two records we talked about, Billy Harvey's Dear Danger and Steve Forward's Mission of the Crossroad Palms. Um, I love, well, I, I love these two records to death, you know. But I've listened to their other music, and I don't like it as much. Okay. And it just... And I, I feel bad saying that, but people tell me that all the time. They say, Broke Down's your favorite, your best record, man. It's the record I made 23 years ago, 24 years ago. And you're like, hey, come on, man. Hey, man I've made six records since then. You know, <laughs> looked at that. And so I'm totally, but I'm totally guilty of, I've, I've listened to other Steve Corbett, I've listened to other Billy Harvey, and there's good songs, obviously awesome songs, but there's not an album that is just perfect for me. You know, it's, it's obviously a totally subjective thing, and when you find it, it's, yeah, Brilliant, I, you know. I had texted you and said, "Man, I just listened to that Steve Forward album. That's," and your response was, "It's a perfect album." <laughs> <In> <laughs> That's what you said is. back to me. Yeah, just just a few words. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I I really enjoyed that for sure. What else? Any of these records you want to discuss more on? I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to to. Uh, dig into them one more time and, and I can say that they stand the test of time for me they really do um, I'm glad to hear that because yeah. and when you told me you went back and listened to them I love it when people do that mm-hmm. I try to inspire people to go do it I don't, yeah. don't know if they have the time to do it is the thing yeah. uh, but it makes the conversation a lot better sure and uh, I too appreciate you coming taking your time to come here and, and talk to me about this stuff because I have I've already said it, immense amount of uh, admiration for what you do oh thanks man and your craft thank you um, I I try to study it. I, I I try to come up with as clever lyrics as you do. <laughs> that, 
it doesn't always work. Yeah, it's hard. But so tell me where people can find you and your fans, where they can find you on the, on the good old interweb. Well, the best place to go is straight to the source, Slade.com, S-L-A-I-D. And I guess you're going to be on social channels too. Yeah, you know, some people, you know, if that's the way they want to get in touch with me, you can you can send me information on uh, Instagram or, or uh, Twitter. And my wife monitors the Facebook, so we'll get Karen on the Facebook. There you go. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, right on. I really appreciate you coming down. Hey, my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, anytime. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Cheers. All right. Adios. Man alive. Boy, that was a hoot. I love that conversation, Slade. Super cool guy. You can find him on the good old interweb at slade.com. That's S-L-A-I-D.com. Many thanks to all you guys who are still listening. And if you're digging on what we're laying down, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you don't mind telling one person, just one person, about this podcast, it would be really appreciated. I feel that uh, word of mouth is the best way to gain exposure. And if you're really digging it, you can give us a review anywhere you listen to your podcast. Again, thank you very much. And it takes me a lot of time to research, listen, record, edit all this podcast. And if you can spare even a dollar, just a cup of a coffee. Um, head over to my Patreon page. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash MyTop5Records. And if you've got the gumption, head over to, to uh, TheBigGunShow.com and check out what my band is up to these days. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube with the handle of TheBigGunShowBand. Uh, our most consistent gig is our monthly residency at the Little Longhorn Saloon here in Austin, Texas, home of Chicken Shed Bingo. We play the happy hour of the first Friday of every month. Make sure to bring Grandma. She's going to have a blast. Now close your eyes. Get your top five records on your iPhone. Doing chores around the house. What five records do you have? Until next time. Oh,